0: Saints for Home and School 5 St Patrick 387 to 493 Apostle of Ireland Feast is March 17th At Easter time in the year 433 the pagan kings of Ireland and their followers met at Tara for their annual druid festival no fires were to be lighted until the chief king had first lighted his Great, therefore, was the astonishment when on a distant hill bright flames arose. "'Who dares disobey our solemn command?' cried the chief king to his attendants. The druid priests answered, "'This fire, O king, has been lighted by a stranger who teaches a new doctrine. If it is not put out before morning, it will never be put out, but will shine over this kingdom to the end of time.' GUARDS WERE SENT TO ARREST HIM WHO HAD DISOBEYED THE KING'S ORDERS AND BRING HIM TO ANSWER FOR HIS CRIMES. WHO ARE YOU? SAID THE KING. WHY COME YOU TO OUR LAND AND WHY HAVE YOU DISOBEYED OUR ORDERS? THE STRANGER ANSWERED, I AM PATRICK, BISHOP OF GOD, SENT FROM ROME BY POPE CELESTINE TO TEACH THE PEOPLE OF THIS LAND THE FAITH GIVEN TO US BY OUR LORD AND SAVIOR JESUS CHRIST. At these brave words, the Druids were afraid because they knew the time had come when their power in Ireland would be broken. They made plans to kill the stranger and his companions. Aided by the powers of evil, they did wonders of many kinds. But the miracles performed by St. Patrick were far more wonderful than the greatest efforts of the Druids. The chief king was astonished. Tell us about your god, he said. HE HAS GIVEN YOU TREMENDOUS POWER. THERE IS BUT ONE GOD, ANSWERED ST. PATRICK, AND THREE DIVINE PERSONS, THE FATHER, THE SON, AND THE HOLY GHOST. THEN STOOPING TO THE GROUND, HE PLUCKED A LITTLE GREEN SHAMROCK. HOLDING IT UP BEFORE THE KING, HE SAID, EVEN AS THERE ARE THREE LEAVES ON THIS ONE STEM, SO THERE ARE THREE PERSONS IN ONE GOD. THE KINGS AND NOBLES OF IRELAND WERE MUCH PLEASED WITH THE STRANGER'S WORDS and readily listened to all he told them he received permission to go through ireland with his disciples and preach the new faith wherever he pleased such was the result of the great victory he won at terra who was st patrick and how did he come to be a missionary in this pagan land although it is not known exactly where he was born the majority of scholars seem to think he was a native of what is now dumbarton scotland his father was Capernaus, a Roman officer of good family, and his mother was Cauchessa, a niece of St. Martin, Bishop of Tours. At sixteen he was captured by pirates and carried as a slave to Ireland. Here he was sold to a chief named Milco, who sent him to mine sheep in the mountains. His own words tell what he did during the six years of his captivity after i had come to ireland i was daily tending sheep and many times in the day i prayed and more and more the love of god and his faith and fear grew in me and my spirit was stirred so that in a single day i have said as many as a hundred prayers and in the night nearly the same SO THAT I REMAINED IN THE WOODS AND UPON THE MOUNTAINS, AND BEFORE THE DAWN I WAS CALLED TO PRAY BY THE SNOW, THE ICE, THE RAIN, AND I DID NOT SUFFER FROM THEM, NOR WAS THERE ANY SLOTH IN ME, AS I SEE NOW, BECAUSE THEN THE SPIRIT WAS BURNING WITHIN ME. AFTER SIX YEARS A VOICE FROM HEAVEN TOLD HIM TO GO BACK TO HIS OWN COUNTRY. A SHIP IS READY AT THE SEA COAST, THE VOICE SAID. After a journey of two hundred miles the young man found the ship. With some difficulties he succeeded in getting on board and sailed with a crew to Gaul, the country we now call France. After landing he went to the monastery where lived St. Martin, Bishop of Tours, and studied there for a number of years. Upon the death of St. Martin, St. Patrick went to live with St. Germanus, Bishop of Auxerre. From there he went to the monastery of Lorenz, near the present town of Canes on the Mediterranean Sea. Here St. Patrick prepared himself for his future mission. He had visions in which he saw the children of Ireland raising their hands to him and begging him to come once more and live among them. Leaving Lorenz, he went to Rome and continued his studies in the great Lateran College." With St. Germanus he went to Britain, where he was a missionary for some time. He then returned to Rome at request of St. Germanus, who recommended him to the Pope as a laborer well worthy of every trust. Divine Lord, St. Patrick, grant that the Holy Father may give me authority to preach thy sacred truths to the Irish nation. Grant that its people may be gathered into one fold. His prayer was quickly answered. St. Celestine consecrated him bishop and granted him permission to go as a missionary to Ireland. With great joy he set out on the journey. In the year 432 he landed on Irish soil near the present town of Bray. The people there drove him away, so he took a ship and went further north. This time he landed in a spot south of the river Boyne. He lay down to sleep after his tiresome voyage, and as he slept, a boy named Benignus strewn sweet flowers over him. I want to go with you always, said Benignus. I refuse to leave you. You may come with me, replied the saint, for you shall be the heir of my kingdom. This prophecy was fulfilled many years later when Benignus succeeded Saint Patrick as Bishop of Arma. The missionary and his follower then sailed forth north, this time landing in the country down. A fierce chief named Dicu came to meet the strangers. He raised his sword to strike St. Patrick, but his arm suddenly became powerless. In astonishment, Dicu listened to the truths of the faith and received baptism. And then, after the victory over the Druids before all the kings of Ireland, at Easter of 433, the saint was given permission, as we have already learned, to preach the gospel everywhere in the kingdom. Thousands of people were baptized, thus receiving for the first time the wonderful faith of Christ. God helped St. Patrick every step of the way as he went through the country. Countless miracles proclaimed the truth of the doctrines he was preaching. In Roscommon, the saint converted two princesses who asked for baptism and Holy Communion. Immediately afterward, they died and went to that happy land of which they had heard St. Patrick tell. They were laid out for burial in their beautiful white baptismal robes, the symbols of their innocence. At Crowpatrick in Connaught St. Patrick used to go up into a lonely mountain on Ash Wednesday to fast and pray for Ireland. On Easter Sunday he would come down after, having fasted for forty days. During that time he always fought against the enemies of the souls, and begged of Almighty God that the Irish people would remain faithful to the truths of Christianity. His prayer was answered. Ireland, in spite of the bitterest persecution, has never lost the precious jewel of the faith. In Munster he met a prince named Angus, and converted him, together with his people. While he was baptizing the prince, St. Patrick unknowingly pierced the prince's foot with his staff. Angus did not cry out, but bore the pain without flinching. "'Why did you not let me know?' said St. Patrick, when he saw the blood coming from the wound." I thought it was part of the ceremony, replied the prince. Such heroism St. Patrick found in Ireland. In other parts of the country, thousands of people flocked to the saint to be baptized. He established churches and schools wherever he went. He even consecrated bishops and placed them in their diocese. Numerous miracles healed the sick and raised the dead were granted through his intercession. He assisted the kings of Ireland in reforming the laws, taking out those parts which were opposed to Christian doctrine, and rewriting them. He then blessed the law books. For over a thousand years these laws remained. He fixed his own see at Armagh. He loved the place and would have chosen it for his burial. The place of my resurrection, as he himself called it. However, it was not God's will and he that he should be laid to rest there. On March seventeenth, 493, he died and was buried at Saul in the County Down. The bell he used in calling people to worship of God is still preserved in the new cathedral, which now stands on the same site where stood St. Patrick's own church. This very same bell was rung at the Eucharistic Congress held at Dublin in 1932. What a thrill went through the vast multitude of pilgrims as they heard St. Patrick's own bell, almost his own voice, bidding his people ever to be true to the faith of their fathers. And his people are of many nationalities, for the missionary sons of St. Patrick have helped carry the faith to many countries of the world. St. Catherine of Siena, 1347-1380 to 1380, Peacemaker and Author Feast is April 30th Mother, the mail's here, said Catherine. A letter from Italy for me. It must be from Uncle Ben. He promised me one. Mrs. Jackson smiled at her daughter's excitement. Are you going to read it for me, Catherine? She asked. Yes, Mother. I was just looking at the Italian stamp on the envelope. The postmark shows it's from Siena. Well, here is what Uncle Ben says. Siena, Italy, July 15th. Dear Catherine, Can you stop your play for a few minutes to read what Uncle Ben has to say? Here I am in the old city of Siena, about forty miles south of Florence, Italy. Talk about a feast for the eyes. The famous cathedral alone is worth a trip to see. It is built of red, white, and black marble. And what a beauty it is both inside and out. Pictures painted by famous artists adorn the walls and the statues seem almost alive. The pulpit is a masterpiece in relief, the work of the great sculptor Nicholas of Pisa, who also carved a gorgeous tomb for St. Dominic. I will have much to tell you about the beauties of this cathedral when I return home. Almost six hundred years ago your patron saint, St. Catherine of Siena, probably saw the stonecutters, artists, and sculptors building the great church for during her lifetime the work was going on. How pleased she must have been to see the workmen putting up such a beautiful house for the glory of God! Perhaps some of her own brothers worked on it. She was the youngest in a family of no less than twenty-five children. Yesterday I went to St. Dominic's church. There, when Catherine was only six years old, she saw a wonderful vision— above the tower our lord appeared seated on a splendid throne he was clothed in white robes such as the pope wears and on his head rested the same kind of crown as that worn by the holy father saints peter and paul together with saint john the evangelist stood beside the throne our lord blessed Catherine, who absorbed by the glorious sight completely forgot that she was standing on the street hurry up Catherine! come on her brother Stephen, exclaimed, when he saw her gazing upward. She did not hear, come on. He cried again. Then, receiving no answer, he went back and pulled her by the hand. What is the matter with you? he asked. If you could see what I saw, she replied, you would not disturb me. But when she raised her eyes again, the vision was gone. Yet she could never forget what she had seen. She felt that God wanted her to do some special work, So she prepared herself for it by a life of penance and fervent prayer. When she was old enough, her parents wanted her to get married. She told them, however, that she had made a vow of virginity, and would therefore remain single for the sake of Christ. Her mother, instead of being pleased with the plan, became angry. Her brothers and sister treated her unkindly, thinking her foolish, AS A PUNISHMENT THEY MADE HER DO ALL THE HOUSEWORK FOR THE LARGE FAMILY. DO YOU THINK CATHERINE LIKED THAT? DID SHE BECOME ANGRY? NOT AT ALL. SHE HAD TO WORK HARD, BUT SHE WAS OBEDIENT. NOT EVEN A MURMUR ESCAPED HER LIPS. AT LAST HER PEOPLE WERE COMPLETELY WON OVER BY HER PATIENCE AND SWEETNESS, AND ALLOWED HER TO DO WHAT SHE WISHED. Catherine now put on the white robes of the Third Order of Sisters, established by St. Dominic. The rules allowed her to go back and forth to wait on the poor, or to do any other good works that seemed necessary. Her charity to the sick and needy took up a great deal of her time, and she carried large loads of food each day to the hungry. God helped her several times by manipulating her supply of provisions." Have you ever heard of leprosy? It's a terrible disease. Saint Catherine once took care of an old woman who suffered from it. Don't you think the old woman should have been thankful? But she wasn't. Not a word of thanks did she give. She was cross and scolded the saint. Many people would have given up, but not Catherine. The more the old woman scolded, the better Catherine treated her. THE DEVIL, SEEING THE AMOUNT OF GOOD SHE WAS DOING, TRIED EVERY WAY TO LEAD HER INTO SIN. AT THE SAME TIME THE LORD WITHDREW THE VISIONS HE USED TO SEND HER, SO THAT SHE MIGHT STRUGGLE AGAINST TEMPTATIONS AND THUS GAIN MERIT. SHE DID NOT FEEL A DESIRE TO PRAY, BUT SHE PRAYED ALL THE MORE. HER SOUL SEEMED CLOUDED WITH DARKNESS, BUT SHE KEPT UP HER GOOD WORKS. GOD WAS PLEASED WITH HER BRAVE FIGHT and at last flooded her soul with joy and peace. "'Where were you, divine Lord, when I had those temptations?' Catherine asked. "'I was hidden in your heart,' Jesus answered, "'and by my power you won the victory. By your struggle against evil thoughts you gained a precious crown and jewel for your soul.' Strengthened by prayer and good works, as well as by victory over temptation, the saint made peace among the fighting cities of Italy. Doesn't it seem strange that cities should fight each other? What would you think if Montreal raised an army to fight Toronto, or if New York sent soldiers to capture Boston? But that couldn't happen now. I can almost hear you say, however— That did happen in Italy during St. Catherine's lifetime. More than once the saint was called upon to restore peace among fighting cities. She succeeded in doing so, for the leaders accepted her judgment without question. Her advice was sought not only by the city leaders, but even by the Holy Father himself. Due to the troubles of the times, the Pope had left Rome in 1305 and for 72 years had been living in Avignon in the south of France. St. Catherine made a special visit to Pope Gregory XI and said to him, Holy Father, God wants the head of his church to live in Rome. I pray that you will go there as soon as possible. After a long time of careful consideration, the Pope, in 1377 followed her advice and made Rome once more the home of the Popes. His coming to the Eternal City was hailed with the greatest rejoicing by the people. Where was St. Catherine that day? Did she go to Rome to take part in the great celebration in honor of the Pope's return? No, she remained in her convent humbly thanking God for the great blessing he had granted to the church in making it possible for the father of Christendom to come back again to the city of Peter. Her work for the church was not yet over. The next pope, Urban VI, who wished to be guided by her wisdom, invited her to live in Rome. One day he asked her to speak at a meeting of cardinals. They listened with great attention to her address when she had finished speaking pope urban declared the words of this holy virgin are wise and spoken with great courage let us do what she asks and the sorrow of the church will be over very soon but saint catherine did not live to see the end of the troubles her last days were spent in heroic suffering divine lord she said i offer thee my pains and trials for the holy father and all christians Sometimes, although burning with thirst, she was unable to swallow even a drop of water. Often she was so weak that her companions could scarcely tell whether she had died or was still living. Yet, each time she received holy Communion, her strength would come back for a while. At the age of thirty-three, she passed away on april twenty ninth thirteen eighty. Her last words were those of the dying Christ. FATHER, INTO THY HANDS I COMMAND MY SPIRIT. HER BODY WAS PLACED UNDER THE HIGH ALTAR IN THE MINERVA CHURCH AT ROME. THIS WAS A FITTING HONOR FOR ONE WHO HAD DONE SO MUCH FOR THE KINGDOM OF GOD. BUT IT WAS NOT THE ONLY HONOR GIVEN HER. SHE IS ALSO CALLED PATRONESS OF THE ETERNAL CITY. HER HOME IS Siena, AND IS NOW THE CHURCH OF ST. Catherine. I SPENT TWO HOURS THERE TODAY. You will be delighted when you see the pictures I am bringing home. Yours affectionately, Uncle Ben. Saint Bede, six seventy-three to seven thirty-five, the father of English history. Feast is May twenty-seventh. The district about the Tern River, in the north of England, now devoted to the mining of coal, possessed at one time several famous monasteries. One of these was a yarrow. To this monastery there came about the year 681 a little boy named Bede. We bring him to you, said his parents to the abbot, that he may learn those things a man needs to know in order to live well. The wishes of his parents were wonderfully fulfilled, so carefully did the monks teach him that he became one of England's greatest historians. He is remembered, even to this day, with a great deal of love and respect. For centuries he has been called— the venerable Bede. Shortly after he went to Yarrow, a plague carried off all the monks in death except the abbot and the young Bede, who was only eight years of age. Sad indeed they were at the loss of their companions. Imagine the man and the boy being left alone in the lonely rooms of their monastic house. Yet the two continued to carry on the services of the church and followed all the rules of the community until others came to join them. One can almost hear the strong voice of the abbot and the tender voice of the child singing the psalms of vespers together while the shadows of an English evening close in upon the monastery. Bede spent all his life in Yarrow. What were his daily duties? Let his own words tell us. I have spent the whole of my life within the monastery devoting all my energy to the studies of the scriptures and amid the observance of monastic discipline and the daily change of singing in church, it has ever been my delight to learn or to teach or to write. I have made brief notes upon Holy Scripture out of words of the Fathers. He was ever reading, writing, teaching, or praying. His greatest written work is his ecclesiastical history of the English people. To secure information... FOR IT IS HE VISITED OTHER MONASTERIES IN THE NEIGHBORHOOD AND WROTE MANY LETTERS TO PERSONS OF IMPORTANCE. THE KING OF Northumberland AND THE KING OF KENT WERE HIS FRIENDS AND FURNISHED HIM WITH STORIES OF MANY EVENTS WHICH TOOK PLACE IN THEIR KINGDOMS. THE BISHOP OF ENGLAND GAVE HIM DETAILS OF HAPPENINGS IN ALL PARTS OF THE COUNTRY. A messenger even went to Rome, searched through the records in the Vatican, and brought back with him all the information that could be found there relating to the work of the Church of England. This shows the kind of scholar St. Bede was. He had to search everywhere and find out all the facts possible so that his history would be complete and truthful in all respects. No writer has ever done his work better than St. Bede in those far-off days twelve centuries ago. Yet in every page that beautiful, kindly character of the saint seems to stand out. Among his writings there are letters to bishops in which he gave them sound advice on the management of their diocese. He knew exactly what reforms were needed in every part of England. His respectful counsel show how broad was his mind, how full of charity his soul, and yet how fearless he was in urging justice to be done. To one bishop he wrote, Do not then allow yourself to be stopped by those who, to protect the works of their greed, present before you characters furnished with the signatures of great men and nobles. Answer them in the words of our Lord. All that my Father in heaven has not planted shall be rooted out. Tell those who lead sinful lives that they cannot be absolved from their sins for the sake of some alms thrown to the poor. The hand which gives to God must be, like the conscience, pure from all crime and soil. This is my judgment against the venom of greed. I should never come to an end had I to speak at equal length of other vices from which God gives you grace, my dearest bishop, to deliver your flock. Did St. Bede's life pass without a single cloud of trouble? No. He had enemies, as have all men who tried to do anything worthwhile. In England there were jealous people full of envy against him because of the great respect in which he was held by all who knew him. These selfish persons accused him of teaching false doctrines. This unjust accusation hurt St. Bede very much, because there is nothing a great man values more than his good name. While he bore their insults patiently, yet he defended himself forcefully in his reply to their charges. The last day of St. Bede the Venerable were spent in singing songs of Thanksgiving. He became sick shortly before Easter, but for forty days spent his time teaching the other monks, "'thanking God for his illness, and finishing his writing. "'Dearest Master,' one of the monks said to him, "'the day before Ascension Thursday, "'one chapter is still wanting. "'Can you bear our asking you about it?' "'I can bear it,' answered Bede. "'Take your pen and be ready to write quickly.' "'In the afternoon he sent for the priest of the monastery "'and divided among them some little gifts. "'He spoke to them all, begging them to say Mass "'and pray for him after his death.' Toward evening the monk, who had been doing his writing for him, said, Dear Master, there is yet one sentence not written. Saint Bede answered, Write quickly. In a moment or so afterward the monk said, Now it is finished. Good. Thou hast spoken truly, replied Bede. It is finished. His companions placed him at his request on the floor of his cell, where he continued to sing, Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and with these words he gave up his soul to god and so passed away a great man through all his life there had been no carelessness no laziness no putting off until tomorrow the duties that should be done today every bit of work had to be perfect that was his guiding thought whatever you do do with your might things done by halves are never done right In the way the old proverb goes, St. Bede's whole life was spent doing things not by halves, but with all his might.